Hey guys, David Reeves here. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. Hope you enjoy. And remember, you can catch a new episode every Wednesday at noon central on all your streaming devices. Most of these podcasts have visuals, so if you want to see the entire video, check them out at creationsuperstore.com. They're available on DVD or digital download. All right, let's get to it. Hello again, everyone. This is Steve Green on the Charisma Podcast Network, and this is the Green Lines Podcast. Every one of these podcasts is produced to help you live an abundant life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I want that, don't you? The Lord has led us to produce over 1,100 episodes of this show with interviews from authors, pastors, teachers, business owners, and even noted musicians and worship leaders. All of this is done with a prayer and belief that we're not to live a life of scarcity. Let me say that again. We are not to live a life of scarcity. We're to live a life of abundance every day of our life. Live in abundance. That's what this show's about. And today's episode features a guest who offers a new perspective on abundant living. So my guest today is a monthly guest. I've asked David Reeves to come back every month to discuss science and how it proves, really not debatable way, that God is all about creation. So David has a weekly TV show called Creation with David Reeves. It airs to hundreds of millions globally on TBN. He's an expert in science, and if you've had any doubt about that, just listen to this show, and uh, I think you'll be convinced. He's a news columnist and author of the books Wonders Without Number and 21 Verses Backed by Science. He's seen every day on Christian television, on Christian TV. His work has been featured on the History Channel, DirecTV, TBN, CBN, and Dr. James Dobson's radio program, and a whole lot more. And as I said, He's going to be on the Charisma Podcast Network uh, on this show. I'm going to interview him every month, but he also has his own show that I strongly recommend, and I hope you'll listen to the last one where we talk about dinosaurs and hummingbirds, all in the same show. You don't want to miss that one. I hope you go back and get it. Today, you're in for a real treat. If you think Lucy was the first walking ape that began to look like a human, uh, you really need to listen to some facts here today and understand some of the things that David has found in his research, I just think it's going to bless you and will remove a lot of those myths we learned in high school about so-called evolution that just doesn't show up when you begin to look closely at what God has done through creation. Now here's David Reeves. So I have my favorite scientist back with me now by way of the telephone, and we're going to talk a little bit today about DNA. We'll start there and see where the Lord takes this. So brother, I'm just so glad to have you back and hope that you're well blessed and everything's fired up. So David, welcome back to the studio. Thank you, Dr. Green. It is great to be back. So let's talk about DNA. That's where everything starts. So point to us a way of looking at it from a Christian viewpoint. Why is this the code of life? Yeah, uh, well, DNA is fascinating to me because, I mean, I love science, but a lot of people say, uh, you know, I don't know if I can really grasp it. I mean, I know it's important. Well, I guess we should break it down because deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, is basically like a blueprint that makes us who we are. You can find DNA, this blueprint of life, this 
language in a blade of grass, you can find it in a rose, you can find it in a butterfly, you can find it uh, in a banana, you can find it in an ape, and you can find it in yourself. But the way the book is written, the way the DNA is written, makes you 100% unique. So we have a completely different book than, let's just say, A Blade of Grass. However, it is so amazing that God has placed this code, I think it's like his fingerprint, that he's placed on all life. And when I say life, again, I'm talking about you know, a, a tree or a person or an animal or a plant. Anything that has life has this code inside of it. Mm -hmm. And it's based on, uh, you know, four letters that can be arranged in any number of trillions of combinations. And the way those letters are written forms words, it forms phrases, it forms expressions. And those expressions basically make us all completely unique. Now, <laughs> I might mention that that expression, that DNA code that is written inside of each and every one of us, well, that can be found from the moment of conception, not from birth, from the moment of conception, you yes. have your own unique code. So Dr. Green, what this really means is that we are all special and that we are created by God who has placed his fingerprint on us through DNA. So you call it a, a proof of a designer. It points to the proof of a designer input. And is that because of the uniqueness? Is that what, what makes you draw that conclusion? Not entirely just because of the uniqueness, because when you look at DNA, when you look at the blueprint for life, you realize that it is an information language system. And if some of your listeners are are taking notes right now, just mentally make a note. Information language system, because there's a ton of information in DNA. It can be expressed as a language, and it is very systematic. So an information language system always comes from a mind. You, you pick up your instruction book for, uh, you know, building a, even the simplest thing for putting together, plugging in a microwave or putting together a puzzle or whatever it is, that instruction book, you look at it and you're like, well, this didn't happen by chance. Somebody, some person took a lot of thought and a lot of intelligence and a lot of foresight and they wrote down the, the instructions of what I'm supposed to do. Well, I mean, the exact same thing is true for DNA because some, somebody with a lot of foresight with a lot of wisdom wrote down instructions that tells your body how to create itself. And that doesn't happen by chance. It has to have a, a designer, an engineer behind it. So what do atheists do with this? How do they look at it, particularly scientists, people in your field that really study DNA, the greater, broader view of it, and how do they end up in that place where they doubt? Well, my colleagues who are skeptics, they will often point to uh, what's called the Miller-Urey experiment. And basically, this was a, uh, a very basic experiment that was done many, many years ago. And it's where they, they tried to put some chemicals uh, basically in these flasks, and they sent electricity through the chemicals. And they said, well, wow, the chemicals have changed structures ever so slightly. And so we've created life. And this 
can be found in nearly every young person's textbook to this day. And it's an experiment that was done 50 years ago or so. And that is their proof that you don't need an intelligence to make DNA. Now, granted, they did not make life and they didn't make DNA. They only made a few basic amino acids of which you need trillions of combinations to make anything complex. They didn't do any of that. They simply bombarded chemicals with electricity and created a few amino acids and said, wow, we made life. So they don't attempt to explain how DNA came to be. They just say, well, I bet you that we could do this and that it could happen naturally if you give it enough time. So, I mean, it's just an amazing, it's bigger than probably our minds can perceive this and understand it. You've done research and found an enzyme that makes life possible and it's being studied for potential cancer treatments. So tell me a little bit about that. I'm not going to dare try to pronounce it. And then when I hear you say it, it'll be too easy. So go ahead and talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's just look inside us really quick. And let's realize that we have trillions of combinations of DNA. If we were to write out our instruction book, it would be about uh, 1,200 encyclopedia volumes long. So that's a big uh, work, a volume of works that is our DNA. If If we realize that each cell of our body has that amount of DNA compacted into us, well, then that means that just inside of you and me, we have enough information to fill the entire Library of Congress multiple times. All right, so we've got a ton of information packed into us, and that information, that DNA, uh, if you've ever seen a picture of it, It looks almost like a double-stranded rope tied in on itself, like a double helix of DNA. Well, that can get tangled up. Now, uh, in biology, we realize that these cells have to reproduce themselves. So there are tiny microorganisms that go in and they, little micro machines that go in, they read our DNA. And then they replicate that DNA so that another cell can share that information. All right, but what if our DNA gets knotted up? Well, it's a real problem. It happens actually all the time. Our DNA is getting uh, knotted up. And what we say when it gets linked to another strand of DNA, we say it's catenated. So it's, it's linked together. It, uh, it has topological strain, which is when it gets basically knots in it. And these little micro machines can't read it. Well, we would die if we if this happens because those cells could not reproduce. That DNA couldn't replicate itself. And that is where this little enzyme comes into play. Because uh, listen, let me tell you this. This is this is unbelievable. It's it's got a huge name. So deoxyribonucleic acid topoisomerase enzyme number two. And again, it sounds like a massive name, but topoisomerase is this tiny enzyme that goes in and it finds the knot. It finds the the linked or knotted place in the DNA and it cuts it. Now, now Dr. Green, just imagine this because just imagine that you have a rope and the rope has a knot in it. Okay. And we're trying to get to every side of the rope. Well, you can't because of the knot. So somehow you have to get rid of the knot. 
you can't figure out how to untie it, so you have to cut the knot. Now, as soon as you cut that stranded rope, what's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to fall all apart, right? It's going to yes. fray, just like yeah, the ends was, of a rope will fray. I was looking for a scientific answer, sir. <laughs> fall all apart would have been my natural answer. <laughs> well, okay, so so think about a rope fraying. The, the DNA is going to do the exact same thing when you cut that double-stranded helix it's going to lose information. It's going to fray apart. So this enzyme goes in. It finds the knot. It cuts right in the middle of the knot. But instead of allowing the, the rope to fray or the DNA to fall apart, it pinches it. It holds it together. It pulls right. the DNA apart just enough to get the knot untied. It unties the knot. And then it sews back together that little strand of DNA as if nothing ever happened. Well, no wonder it's got a big, long name. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty fancy, brother. How does scientists find this? That, this well, discovery process amazes me. Yeah, the discovery process is is really unique because uh, I have a friend, uh, Dr. Joe DeWeese, uh, who we did... We did some uh, television episodes about this. He uh, has been working in laboratories studying this little enzyme, and they found it because they're, they're searching for ways to target cancer cells. So think about this. If you can unknot DNA, what if we could purposely sabotage cancer cells and knot it all up and take away the enzyme that will repair it? And therefore, those cells would die. So it holds so much potential, but there's even a, a lesson for us as Christians inside of this topoisomerase enzyme because the enzyme that unknots the DNA has to be made. And the instructions for making the enzyme is in the DNA. Now, if the DNA gets knotted, then it can't get rid to replicate itself to make the enzyme. This is a chicken and an egg problem. In other words, you can't have the enzyme without the DNA, but you can't have the DNA without the topoisomerase enzyme. They both had to be created from the very beginning by a designer, by a grand engineer uh, who wanted to make sure that we would survive. Isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm totally amazed that I've got to ask you the question, does this come close to explaining what CRISPR is all about? Are they going after the same thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9, all of these um, genetic uh, experiments that are going on, it is, it's, has a little bit of similarities. Basically, CRISPR is taking a section of DNA and it is inserting it in a way that it, it continues to be read in the entire structure of the DNA. So yeah, it has some similarities uh, in the way that it is inserted and the way the DNA is spliced to insert it, but they are two different fields of research that are both, they hold a lot of potential. Well, that's exciting for cancer, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. And I'm understanding healing the blind uh, from birth. There are a lot of applications to CRISPR and this kind of technology on DNA that can change at birth disease. Yes. You know, it, there's there's a fine line, right? Because it's, at some point we feel like, 
are we are we messing with God? You know, are we are we trying to exploit and change his creation? Uh-huh. But at the same sense, if used responsibly, then it it is exciting because what we're actually doing is we're we're only taking what God has created and we are trying to repair what sin has brought in. Oh you know, my, that's so good. In the beginning, we we sinned, right? Adam and Eve, the first people, they disobeyed God's commands. So they sinned. Well, sin entered into the world death entered into the world things like cancer entered into the world okay that is a corruption as the result of our sin but god has made a way to try to repair this corrupted dna to try to keep us healthy and even still we know we're going to die we know that we're not going to live forever in this world but we have <laughs> this is so wonderful. We have the ability to live forever with our creator for eternity, not in this life, but in eternal life it with is. him. Such a good word. So I think you're just touching on the borders of medical ethics then. You know, what is ethical? How do we define it? Does it get into religiosity or medical ethics, something that you define as a group of leaders who say what is ethical and what isn't? Yes, uh, you you have to be careful that we we don't draw this line to where it's objective morality, right? Because objective right. morality is what is so popular right now, and it is we choose what's right, we choose what's wrong, and it really boils back to the first lie ever told to Eve in the garden that you can be like God and you can yeah. know good and evil. Uh, so we do have to be really really careful. We want to exploit it for good, but uh, when it comes to modifying humans into inserting animal um, characteristics uh-huh. and all of that, I think right. you've taken it too far. So that brings me to Lucy. Now, you know, there's been so much study. I remember studying Lucy when I was in high school and how we evolved from apes. And, you know, we didn't get the antithesis to that. We didn't hear the other side of the story in school. But I understand there's new research on Lucy and and reveal some clues as to our origin. Would you share that with us? Yes. Um, okay. So so Lucy, she was found, I think, in 1970s uh, by Donald Johansson. Uh, he found her in Ethiopia in a valley there. And uh, it was basically on a hillside. He started digging down. They started to find these remains. Now, they found bits and pieces, and they pieced together a skeleton that looks kind of impressive. But uh, Lucy has been in biology textbooks as the poster child of human evolution. Okay, so for years, everybody has said, this is proof that humans evolved from ape-like ancestors, because you have a uh, an upright walking creature that uh, appears to be somewhat human-like in nature, and uh, and she's called Lucy, and she's been found. So we know that evolution is true. All right, this is what's what's been told in the textbooks. However, if we were to just dive into a few of the more recent discoveries with Lucy, things that we should have spotted much earlier, it is shocking. Uh, what we haven't been told about this supposed ape-like ancestor. Tell me, tell me, tell uh, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so Lucy, 
we found a lot of her skeleton and scientists have been staring at her skull at her not only her skull but also her backbone uh some of the ribs some of the uh digits of her hand uh femur etc for over 40 years now and they've been staring and they've been staring and then they finally realized that there's one bone that has been sitting there all along that actually doesn't belong to the same creature. It's from an extinct uh-huh. bonobo. Uh-huh. And they missed that for 30 or 40 years. Because they're Staring human. at this thing. Yeah. But because not only are they human, but, and, and I think you know where I'm going with this, Dr. Uh-huh. Green. Uh, they were so blinded by wanting an ape-like ancestor that they dared not question it. Okay, they were so obsessed with it that they just sort of created this skeleton out of thin air uh, in the shape that they wanted it to be. And they missed that some of the bones were from different creatures. All right. So that's number one. Now I'm going to get to number two. Come on. Number two is the pelvis bone was fractured. The hip was fractured when they found it. And they literally took a grinder to these bones and glued it back together. And when they did that, they glued it back together in a way that made it look like she walked upright. Okay. So maybe she wasn't an upright walking Uh human ancestor. I've heard. All right. Yeah. Number three, uh, number three is that number of the, like all of the long bones of her body. So her, her leg bone, her arms, um, all of the long bones in her body were fractured. And they're what we call green stick fractures. Okay, so green stick fractures happen when you're trying to brace yourself as you fall. Well, we estimate that this thing may have fallen 40 feet out of a tree, tried to brace itself as it fell. And when it hit the ground, it snapped those arm and leg bones of its body. Wow. Now, let me ask you a question. What okay. is an upright walking human doing 40 feet up in a tree? Cougar. <laughs> there you go. So maybe it's, from not, animal. <laughs> maybe it's not an upright walking human. So that brings us to number four. Number four, uh, if you go to a museum today and you see uh, a skeleton of Lucy, you're going to see a reconstruction. And this reconstruction has, you know, uh, it looks kind of like this ape-like creature, but it's walking upright. Well, you look at her eyes. Her eyes, in nearly every representation, they're going to be, um, they're going to have white around the outside of the eyes, okay? Now, next time you go to the zoo, look at the apes. Apes, gorillas, chimps, they don't have eye whites. It's all dark colored. So in the museum, they put eye whites on the representations to make it look more human-like but we don't know what her eyes looked like you don't find eyeballs in the fossil records <laughs> so this was makeup <laughs> yeah it's all made up uh which brings us to number five number five I is love this. uh <laughs> this is so good come on brother <laughs> number five is uh if you look at the actual skull only a few sections of the skull were found. The rest was reconstructed. In other words, as you said, it's all makeup. But the few fractions that we do find indicates that she had a, uh, a slanted uh, face, all right? 
Now, our face, you can look in a mirror, our face is straight up and down. And that's because we walk on two legs, okay? Mm -hmm. So we walk upright, and God designed us with a, a face that is uh, flat on the front. But God designed apes with a slant on their face because they typically walk on four legs, and that way they don't have to bend their neck to look forward. Their eyes are already looking straight ahead when they're walking on all fours. Now, if this is supposedly an ape, an upright walking ape-like ancestor, why does it have a slanted face and not a straight face? Great question. Uh-huh. Uh, which, which brings us now to number what are we at? Six or something like that. Um, and number six is where her skull enters her spinal column, uh, enters her vertebral column, uh, is also on a slant consistent with apes, not humans, which brings us to number seven, her sacrum, which uh, is down in the pelvic region. Uh, they've been staring at this now for over 40 years, right. and there is now some question as to whether they misgendered Lucy. They think uh -oh. it may actually be a male creature. <laughs> it's Luke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I say Brucey instead of Lucy. Yeah. Well, that works. Uh, but, but either are. Okay. So what I'm telling you is we don't know anything well, we, we know a little bit, but we know very little about this creature. And here's what we do know. It was a three and a half foot tall chimpanzee-like creature, about 45, 55 pounds, tiny thing that fell 40 feet out of a tree, fractured all of its uh, long bones, fractured its pelvis in a way that made it look like she walked upright. It may not be a woman. It may actually be a male but it is definitely an ape, not a human. And this is put in our textbooks as proof of human ape ancestry. Yes, it's it not is. a human. It's just an ape that fell out of a tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best proof we have right there. Well, that this... would be an insult for a friend of yours. You just fell <laughs> out of a tree. Oh, come on, Lucy. So let me ask, what is it still doing in textbooks? I thought we were leading our next generations to facts, the history, the science. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm telling you, that is such that's such a legitimate point. We say it all the time. The the textbooks are the last things to be changed, even when you know that they're scientifically inaccurate. And yet wow. it's still found in there and it's still for the last 10, 15 years, none of these these extra details have been added to the textbooks. They've still been taught to children, to susceptible children, to high schoolers, to our college students, as fact that we came from apes, our ape-like ancestors. So what it really is, is it's indoctrination. It's purposeful sabotage that leads us not towards science. It is science fiction. It's real science goes with repeatable, observable evidence. And when we're ignoring that and when we're teaching our children things that have no basis in science, then that is no better than Stalin did when he promoted atheistic education in the public school system uh, in the Soviet Union. It, we're doing no better than these other atheist dictators who have done atrocities to to their countries, we're seeing the same patterns repeated here in America. 
Makes one very ill, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's sad. It's sad because why can't we stick to the truth? You know, why do we have to twist things to only fit with an atheistic agenda? Why do mm -hmm. we have to try to insert the idea of Darwinian evolution into every bit of science when we realize that Darwinian evolution is a faith-based belief? It's its own religion. Yes. So let me ask you, does anyone like National Geographic or a schooled uh, periodical, some type of national research, does anybody ever really get in the middle of this and start teaching it? You know, it, sadly, I, I haven't seen much of that. Um, there, there, are, uh, there are special groups that are out there that are trying to push you know, the more recent science, the new discoveries about these creatures. But let's face it, um, nobody is nobody is anxious to change the textbooks because Lucy is that textbook example. And if you take away really one of a handful of proofs that humans evolved from ape-like ancestors, then you destroy evolution, which only leaves really one good possibility, and that is that there is a creator, that there is a designer, and then you have to ask yourself, well, who is that designer? Now, uh, some atheists will then say, uh, yeah, but the designer is not God. The designer must be aliens, or the design, you know, they'll go to these drastic uh, lengths to try to keep from saying that the designer is God, but there's only one designer who gave us his book that tells oh. us how he created us. And that is the Holy Bible, God's word of truth. He has given us. It has the history of mankind. It has the history of the universe. It says that it wasn't created by chance. It has never been proven false historically, scientifically, prophetically. Uh, when it comes to the gospel message, never been proven false in any way. It has stood the test of time. And that is, frankly, it's frightening for these atheists. They can't admit it. Well, that makes it difficult, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Let's talk, before we run out of time, I want to get to the Arctic turn. I've read a little bit about what you speak about. You've got some pretty nice insight on this Arctic turn. Talk to us about it. Yeah, you know, the hummingbird is my favorite, favorite bird, but my... Second favorite bird is probably the Arctic tern. Uh, the Arctic tern is a, a seabird. It has a global population, I think, if my memory recalls, there's around a million of them out there. And they're basically like a sea swallow. The, uh, like, uh, the swallow is a type of bird. Well, there is a reference in the Bible. Um, I don't remember the exact verse, but it says that uh, God has given the the sea swallow, the uh, turtle dove, and the crane, uh, the knowledge that they need to survive, okay? Mm -hmm. So the Bible says that God has given the swallow this wisdom, this knowledge. Okay. Well, let's see what the Arctic turn does. It will take a, a migration path that is pretty extraordinary, okay? So when it starts to get uh, cool, it might move or migrate from Greenland or the Netherlands, uh, somewhere way up north, and it will go along the African coast 
uh, all the way down to the southern tip of Africa. Uh, then it will turn eastwards. Uh, it will fly as far as Australia, sometimes New Zealand. Then it'll turn south again. And it's tracking this warmer weather um, as it gets cold in the northern hemisphere, right? And so as soon as it gets summer in the uh, southern hemisphere, well, it ends up in Antarctica uh, when it's warmer on the shores of Antarctica in the southern hemisphere when it's really, really cold up here. So now it spends its summers, our winters, uh, traveling around Antarctica on the shores. And then it's time to move north again, right? So now it's starting to get cold in the southern hemisphere. It's warming up in the northern hemisphere. So it takes off and it flies in an entirely different path. And it may pick an S-shaped path, uh, like a curved path up the coast of the Americas. And then it finds its way right back to where it started. Now we've tracked these things. Uh, we've put bands on them. We've uh, electronically done everything we can to try to track these things. Uh -huh. And we followed uh, <laughs> these Arctic turns about 56,000 miles on their annual migration journey. Now, 56,000 miles mm -hmm. uh, for a bird that lives about 20 or 30 years uh, on average, right. that equals about a million and a half, about 1.5 million miles in their lifetime that these birds are traveling. That's a lot. That's a lot. And that's so, an indicator of how we should live our life. What does that tell me about the path in our life with Christ? Well, so this Arctic turn, as the Bible said, uh, has been given the ability, the wisdom to, to know exactly what to do, to find its way all the way down to Antarctica, and then when to move out, and when to head back north, all right? So if God has instilled this ability into this little Arctic turn, don't you think that through the Holy Spirit, he gives us the wisdom that we need of when it's time to move south, when it's time to move north, when it's time to stay put, when, when we are supposed to be doing this, and not only when, but what? Because what if the Arctic turn says, okay, I know that I'm supposed to be doing something right now, but God didn't tell it, move south. I know I'm supposed to be doing something right now, but it doesn't know to move north. It would freeze to death. Well, God has given us everything we need for this life. He's given wow. us the instructions that we need. He's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us, to tell us not only when to move, but where to go and what to do and how to please him and how to give him the glory. Now, if that could happen by chance, I don't, I, I just don't get it. It has to be designed and it has to point back to just how special he thinks of us. That's so good. And worth every reason why I want you back as a monthly guest that you're just, you're a faith builder, brother. You may not think of yourself as a faith teacher, but my <laughs> goodness, that's exactly what you're doing. These are so, uh, it's not questionable. What, what you're teaching is so, it's very difficult for anybody to stand against this kind of data. Yes. Uh, you know, this is the kind of scientific empirical data that real science is all about. And yes. what we find is that real science is always consistently pointing us back to Christ and the truth of his creation. Yes, sir. 
Well, brother, I want to make sure we give good attention to your show, Creation with David Reeves. It's here on the Charisma Podcast Network. In addition to that, I'd like you to spend just a minute or two, tell us about some of the products you have, how our audience can connect with you. I know without question that you're going to grow an audience here at Charisma from people who are amazed with what you, the stories you're sharing. How can we get more of you? Where can we find you and help us connect? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, I would encourage you to go to davidreeves.com, david, R-I-V-E-S.com and click on the little uh, button that says magazine. All right. That will, that will bring you to a form. And when you sign that form, basically you just give us your email address and also your physical address, because we'll send you a free uh, bi-monthly magazine, print magazine to your, your mailbox. And then we'll send you a weekly encouraging nuggets of truth uh, via your email inbox. So it's davidrives.com. Click on magazine and you can for free subscribe to both of those options. From there, if you want to get involved, if you want to come to our museum uh, south of Nashville, Tennessee, Feel free to do that. We've got full-size dinosaurs. We've got observatory-class telescopes. Wow. We have Bible manuscripts dating back a thousand years. Um, you can also find out more about, again, the show on the Charisma Podcast Network. You can find out about my show on TBN, and you can also get connected to resources like my books, as well as um, the largest origins-related store in the world where we sell over 1,300 books and videos, all giving glory to Christ as the creator. I love it. And let's not forget hummingbirds. You've got a specialty <laughs> in hummingbirds and it's all over your site and they can find some <laughs> really good information about hummingbirds. I can't wait to have you back next month. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your heart for the Lord. And, and as a scientist, it even makes me smile bigger. I appreciate you so much, David. Thank you, Dr. Green. You've been listening to the Green Lines Podcast. I'm Steve Green on the Charisma Podcast Network. On behalf of my producer, Adley, we'd like to remind all of you that Jesus came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You might want to check your DNA. Kind of proves this stuff. God bless you all. <laughs>